Welcome to the Cambridge Festival Ideas 2017. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the festival so far, if you've been to any events before, um, and uh, that you've got plans to go to many of the other events going on in the festival. Um, I just want to double check that you are all here for Can We Keep Secrets? If you're not, now is the time to leave. Um, and yes, thank you for coming and joining us. Uh, the um, evacuation procedures and things are going on on the screen above me, but basically the emergency exits are at the back of the room the way that you came in. Uh, there is an emergency exit at the end of the corridor um, at both ends, so whichever one seems quickest. Um, we will, of course, be guiding and helping you out where possible. We don't expect a fire, we don't expect a fire drill, so it's all good, hopefully. Um, so I would very much like to introduce, although obviously in the Cambridge area I have no idea why he would need any introduction, because I'm sure he's known to most, um, our chair for the session, and he will then introduce the panellists. Um, so the session is being chaired by Chris Mann, who many of you will know from BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, um, and prior to that he was a BBC Moscow correspondent during the Cold War. So without any further introduction, please welcome Chris Mann. Morning, everybody. Latecomers are welcome. Uh, we'll start with a... I'll, I'll tell you a secret. In the uh, Festival of Ideas, this wonderful Festival of Ideas, is 350 free events. And I think people go on uh, when the events become available and book lots of them, and then a few of you don't turn up. I'm glad you're all here. But um, if you fancy going to an event at the festival, just turn up, because there are a few seats, as you can see. This is completely sold out, but we still have, we still have some room here. Anyway, you're all welcome. I've got, um, and great to see you all here, one, uh, I'm afraid, person who isn't with us is Martha Spurrier, who was supposed to be on the panel uh, from Liberty. She's uh, got a nasty migraine, so can't be with us, but uh, I'm hoping that you will all be her and uh, challenge the panel when the time comes. Uh, lots of, obviously, important questions to ask today. Uh, the official one here, according to uh, the guide, is... How safe is our data in the digital age, and what is the worst that could go wrong? Uh, we have a, a stellar panel of experts. I'm sure we'll get on to fake news and to other elements of uh, what is perhaps, some might think, a, a new Cold War in certain ways. Um, I've been doing these debates at the festival for the last four years and had some great panels, but nothing quite like we've got assembled here. So let me introduce them. I, I should say that I was a, a correspondent in the in the Cold War, I was based in Moscow. It was for ITV, actually, and for CNN, not for the BBC. And um, while I was there in Moscow, I used to get invited to drinks parties by a very charming gentleman at the British Embassy uh, who was the trade attaché. And uh, he went on to become the man who wrote the, the, the dossier, sexed-up dossier that uh, got us into the Iraq War. He was, in fact... Uh, the head of MI6 in, in Moscow at the time, but posed as, as something else. And I think he reported to Richard at, at various times and succeeded him. So let's meet our panel. Um, and in uh, reverse order, you'll be hearing third from, from Nick, Nick Davis. Uh, 40 years as a journalist, uh, investigative work for The Guardian mostly, retired a, a year or so ago. He's been telling us he's now travelling the world, having a very relaxed time, doing no work at all, which sounds fantastic. Uh, towards the end of his career, he was involved in three absolutely landmark stories uh, uncovering the phone hacking scandal in Rupert Murdoch's newspaper, Empire. That must have been hard for a Guardian man. 
uh, initiating the alliance of news organizations which published U.S. war logs and cables obtained by WikiLeaks. You've all read of that, I'm sure. And he worked as part of the team which handled the British end of Edward Snowden's leaks about the U.S. National Security uh, Agency. But that's just the, his, his latter work. I think he was Journalist of the Year in 2000, was it, Nick? 2001? Wait, 15 years ago or so. Um, I remember being at the at the Press Awards when he received that. And he's had a lifetime of absolutely brilliant investigative work. He's written six books, including Flat Earth News, uh, which investigated the flow of falsehood, distortion, and propaganda uh, through mainstream news organizations. And his most recent book is called Hack Attack, which I can recommend to you. It'll be on a big screen soon because it's being made into a film by George Clooney. Uh, is, he, is he playing you, Nick? No, no, he's not up to it. <laughs> the wrong accent. <laughs> Okay, so Nick will be speaking third. Uh, second, and it's a privilege to meet him today, is Sir Richard Dearlove on the end there. Uh, former Master of Pembroke College uh, here in Cambridge, and, but most importantly, former head of the British Secret Intelligence Service, MI6. Uh, he was at the heart of British intelligence for nearly 40 years, served in posts right across the war, world as an intelligence officer, head of MI6 during September 11. Can we imagine what that day was like? And uh, he also was involved uh, in security in, in the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. His code name, I can reveal to you today, it wasn't M, as they say in the movies, in the Bond movies. It was C, is that right, Richard? Correct, yeah. And you, so you've been played in, in films by a woman. Yeah. <laughs> Just deep cover. <laughs> Less charismatic. Uh, he was director of operations uh, and at various posts right the way through MI6 in the 80s and, and 90s, and he always saw their move to the Vauxhall headquarters that you will see in the Bond movies now, no secret there. Uh, he's currently a senior advisor to the Monitor Group, a private uh, equity and consultancy firm, and he's on the board of Ergo, which is a global intelligence and advisory firm, so telling people the big picture right across the world. But he's still involved in academia because he is uh, chairman of the trustees at London uh, University, but he lives here in, in Cambridge. So that's Richard and Nick, and uh, our first speaker is Professor Christopher Andrew, and again, I'm delighted to make his acquaintance again. I've got a stack of his books as a former Moscow correspondent uh, in, my, in my library at home, because he's done a lot of work about the, the Cold War, and in fact worked with um, defectors and others, have you not, to tell the story. Uh, he is founder and convener of the Cambridge University Intelligence Seminar. He's the Emeritus Professor of Modern Contemporary History, uh, former president of Corpus Christi College, uh, official historian of MI5. Uh, extraordinary achievement from 2003 to 2010, so the, the men with secrets invited him in to tell the secrets. He's the chairman of the UK Study Group on Intelligence, the honorary professor at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, he's also been in an Air Commodore and uh, worked in Australia and around the world. His most recent book, Defense of the Realm, is the authorized history of MI5. You'll find it uh, in, with Penguin. And his next book uh, is Secret World, which puts current intelligence problems and operations in a 3,000-year perspective. So let's invite uh, Christopher, Professor Christopher Andrew, first of all, to the podium to give us uh, the, the background to the secret world. Christine. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, let me begin with some good news, which may not sound like uh, good news. Uh, you've come to hear about secrets, and the good news, which is you may think of as bad news, is there are far fewer of them uh, than they used to uh, be. Um, 
until 1992, I mean, it's difficult now to believe, 25 years ago, um, you were probably in Moscow at the, uh, at the time, successive British governments, both Labour and Conservative, believed that it would compromise national security even to admit that MI6 existed. So they didn't. And this is what um, uh, Sir Michael Howard, uh, Regis Professor of History at uh, the University of Oxford, uh, said. So far as official government policy is concerned, the British security and intelligence services do not exist. Enemy agents are found under gooseberry bushes and intelligence is brought to us by the storks. Now, <laughs> a fair summary. I, mean, I used to argue in the 1970s and the 1980s that government policy on official secrets wasn't simply silly. That's an old British tradition. It was also, which those who were silly could not bring themselves to recognise, a serious threat to national security. So why is being silly about official secrets a threat to national security? Well, I tried to explain it, never did to them, but I believe you're quicker on the uptake, so um, I should be able to do it. And it's simply this, that one of the best ways, and in Britain probably the best way, to undermine any important principle is to make it ridiculous. And the Storks and Gooseberry Bushes policy succeeded in doing just that. And if we continue to find official uh, secrecy a difficult and sometimes ridiculous concept, every Conservative and every Labour uh, government in uh, British history up to 1992 is to blame. So, uh, how have things changed? Well, things have changed amazingly, but so rapidly that it's quite difficult to take it in. And nowadays, there are no stalks, there are no gooseberry bushes. Um, more once secret, once top secret information is publicly available on 21st century British intelligence than probably anybody in this lecture hall, me included, has had time to read. So just two examples. Last year's Iraq inquiry on the Iraq war, of course, better known as the Chilcot Report, which takes intelligence as a major theme, and uh, Sir Richard is amongst those who gave extensive uh, evidence to it. 12 volumes and 2.6 million words. It's the longest historical monograph in British history as well as the monograph which contains more previously classified information than any other. I don't think highly of it, but um, anyway, well, we can leave that until, until question time. Second example, and this is something that Nick knows more about uh, than I do, the 1.5 million, let me just repeat that phrase, the 1.5 million top secret or above top secret documents downloaded from highly classified intelligence files by the US intelligence uh, contractor, who I haven't met, but um, uh, Nick has. And uh, he knows, as I've said, about it in greater detail than I do. And of course, it contains much about British as well as US uh, intelligence. And with one important exception, it is the most important major leak in intelligence history over the last few thousand years. Well, lots of front pages. Uh, which, some of which have read, been read, I think, by everybody in this hall, have been written about Chilcot and Snowden. But there's a fundamental um, uh, missing element in all of them, 
And it's this, it's what I call, I hope um, fairly, historical attention span deficit disorder has. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you can explain anything that is worth explaining in current British politics, ranging from Brexit to global warming, without a long-term historical perspective, is, I think, so daft uh, that uh, only um, British writers are capable of, uh, of doing it. But, um, so, um, that's my problem. Uh, and I will take just one example. Like almost, um, uh, well, the, the example that uh, I will take is Snowden's revelations. I mean, you will not have think, and in question time, if you have, please tell me, a single article or book on Snowden which makes the historically obvious point that um, the influence on British government policy, the impact on British um, public opinion, was not a fraction of what um, uh, the row over the interception of Matt Zini's correspondence in London, in uh, um, Victorian Britain, was. Uh, and the evidence is utterly straightforward, if anyone doubts it, um, well, let me talk about it. Uh, it was described by Thomas uh, Carlyle as, quote, a practice near of kin to picking men's pockets. And the uproar at the revelation that Mazzini's correspondence, um, a well notorious subversive uh, correspondence, uh, was being uh, uh, intercepted in both Parliament uh, and uh, the media, ranging from the Times to Punch, which produced some acerbic uh, cartoons, forces the government to close down GCHQ, or what GCHQ was called in those days the deciphering um, uh, branch in 1844. So this means that for the next 70 years, for the first time since Elizabethan England, Britain has no GCHQ. Now, there's never been any prospect that the Snowden revelations would have an impact uh, comparable to, to that. And that is why we enter the First World War in 1914 without a SIGINT agency. You know, the Russians, our allies have it, the French have it, um, but um, we don't. We have to start it from fresh in 1914. Now, the, uh, the other comparison, um, the context which seems to be essential, um, you know, in the Brexit era, uh, excuse me for displaying my prejudices, there is this bizarre thought that you can explain English history by only looking at um, England. You know, the foreigners are all foreign, so um, what, um, what do they know about it? Well, um, the, the best book I've read on English history over the last 10 years, and I think actually more than 10 years, is the book by Bob um, Toombs, which I strongly recommend, The English and Their History. And he makes the point that you can only understand what is distinctive about British history and what is run-of-the-mill about British history by looking at what's going on abroad. So forgive me if I follow Bob Toombs' uh, uh, advice. Uh, one of the things uh, that has changed the whole notion of official secrecy are whistleblowers. They have made a crucial, in my judgment, not always desirable, but they have made a crucial contribution to undermining official secrecy in authoritarian regimes. And it's there, in my judgment, um, which is open for questioning, like uh, everything else that I, I say, rather than in the West, that exposing the role of intelligence agencies has achieved the most. So we really should not look at British official secrecy as we so frequently do in isolation from what the foreigners are up to. So time for just three examples. First example, 
The authoritarian regime, which had most official secrets during the Cold War, was, of course, the Soviet Union. But thanks to the work of a Russian whistleblower who risked his life over a period of 12 years, not a dramatic description, he risked his life almost every day for about 12 years, to remove material from uh, the top secret KGB files. And as a result of his achievements, there is now far more um, material available in Cambridge on what the KGB was up to throughout the Cold War than there is in Moscow. Cambridge is the place to come to uh, work because the, the whistleblowing material can't um, be published uh, in, uh, in, in, in Moscow. And the name of the whistleblower was the senior KGB archivist and uh, secret dissident, Vasily Mitrokhin, with whom I had the enormous privilege, and I mean enormous privilege, of collaborating on a couple of books after he escaped to England, and um, SIS uh, brought out his material uh, for him. All his material from KGB files is now publicly available in Churchill College Archives Centre, and it covers almost every country in the world. Not comprehensively, but there is important secret stuff, or formerly secret stuff, on, for example, every country in Europe, except for Andorra, and except for Liechtenstein. On the other hand, there's some terrific stuff on San Marino. So if your particular interest is pocket states, that is a good uh, uh, place to go. What else does he do? And the, the material is so secret uh, that um, uh, even... but. Uh, he gives the real names of many illegals. In other words, those uh, deep cover uh, KGB officers uh, and agents who manage, as in the TV series uh, Americans, um, to pass themselves off not merely under false identities, but under false nationalities. You, you remember that from the, uh, uh, from the Americans that they do it so well that when 10 of them are caught in uh, uh, 2010, some of their children born in the United States are absolutely amazed to discover that their parents are really Russian and decline to accompany them uh, back to, uh, uh, to Russia. So uh, the level of whistleblowing achieved by Mitrokhin, uh, I think, um, uh, is more comprehensive than any other. And it required um, extraordinary bravery um, to, uh, to, to accomplish. The major 21st century state with the most official secrets today is China. And there is a wonderful book um, on this occasion, not written by a colleague, which I strongly recommend. It has a wonderful title. It's called The People's Republic of Amnesia. And that, of course, is the Chinese non-people's uh, republic. And in pride of place, uh, amongst the um, uh, most controversial official secrets of the Republic of Amnesia is uh, the massacre of pro-democracy protesters in Tiananmen Square on the 4th of June 1989. Now, as well as uh, removing all online search terms related to Tiananmen Square, the uh, People's Republic of Amnesia um, has um, removed all search terms related to any combination of four, six, one, nine, eight, nine. In other words, you can't get there by going to um, uh, the, the date. Now, what we know about the Chinese regime uh, and the massacre, uh, we know largely because of, once again, heroic 
whistleblowers who took enormous risks. And uh, the most important stuff that they got out is in uh, another book. Uh, this will be, be the last book, apart from my own, that I thoroughly recommend, uh, which is called The Tiananmen Papers. And you, you will find that it actually includes some MSS, Ministry of State Security, the then Chinese intelligence agency um, uh, documents. So uh, there are two countries. Um, in which our understanding of official secrets and more broadly the working of the regime has been transformed by um, uh, whistleblowers. The most important current whistleblowers are those who've escaped from North Korea. Thanks to them, we know far more about Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un's unspeakably brutal gulag um, than we knew about Stalin's appalling but less deliberately sadistic gulag at the height of Stalin's great terror. Um, so you can find online, for example, um, a uh, report by the Transitional Justice uh, Working Group, which came out in July, based in Seoul. You don't have to remember that complicated um, uh, uh, authorship. But the title, Mapping Crimes Against Humanity in North Korea, mapping crimes against humanity in North Korea, tells us, as I've already said, far more than we ever knew what was going on in uh, Stalin's um, gulag. So what they've been able to do, uh, based on interviews with 375 escapees, most of whom are not identified uh, for, uh, in the justified fear that um, uh, their relatives would be tortured to death, the standard form of, of death of execution, by the way, in, in the Gulag. With the help of Google Earth imagery, uh, not of course available in the Stalin era, the defectors and refugees have been able to identify 333 killing sites, as well as to give details of some of the horrors perpetrated in them. A smaller number of escapees were amongst those who gave evidence in 2014 to a UN Commission of Inquiry, which reported, and I quote, systematic, widespread, gross human rights uh, violations. The inquiry chairman, uh, Michael Kirby, a former uh, Australian judge, compared the horrors in North Korea to those in Nazi Germany. Quote, the gravity, scale, duration, and nature of the unspeakable atrocities um, committed in this country reveal a totalitarian state that does not have any parallel um, in the contemporary world. So let's hear it for the whistleblowers. But as you see, I think they have contributed far more to our understanding of uh, authoritarian regimes than our own, though I don't um, uh, uh, neglect that. So back to the, uh, what we can conclude from the long-term comparative study of official secrecy. It shows that more often than not, um, over past centuries, it's, and even nowadays in some parts of the world, it's been abused. In pre-21st century Britain, um, it was greatly exaggerated. It did not conceal gulags, but it was greatly exaggerated. In one party state, it has been used and is still being used to conceal appalling abuse of human rights. So that's the case uh, against official secrecy. The case for it is that we need it, and we need it um, quite badly in 21st century Britain. Two reasons um, which um, I hope will um, produce... Um, uh, um, um, different points of view within, the, uh, within those here. We need intelligence agencies properly regulated, of course, within a legal framework, and there will be multiple views in this hall on what that can, uh, consists of. 
And secondly, we can't do without them. Why can't we um, uh, do without them? Because, uh, why can't we do without official secrecy? Because if intelligence agencies can't operate secretly, there's absolutely no way that they can operate um, at all. And what all that one has to look at is the major threats to national security over the last century. Uh, World War II, everybody in this uh, room has heard of Ultra. It's an extraordinary fact that the secret, the best kept secret in British history that we know about uh, up to that point, if Hitler had discovered we were breaking his ciphers, well, amongst other things, D-Day could not have gone ahead uh, on the 6th of June, uh, 1944. During the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, well, it was pretty remarkable that that reached a peaceful conclusion. If the Russians had known what we knew about what they were up to, at the very least one can say is that a peaceful conclusion would have been far less likely. Counterterrorism. Well, it is worth contemplating why there has been no British 9-11. It's not the case that the, the, the uh, Al-Qaeda didn't want a British 9-11. It tried and failed. Why did it fail? Because the people who wanted to do it in, in Britain were under surveillance. Uh, and as you already know from the extensive report of the 9-11 Commission in the United States, none of the suicide uh, hijackers were under surveillance in the uh, United States. Uh, I had been going to show you some of the surveillance uh, photographs, but um, uh, it was quite understandably decreed that there wasn't time. But you can find um, uh, some of the surveillance photographs uh, in uh, my history of MI5 uh, defense of, uh, of the realm. Now, do uh, we are just at the moment, um, I'm, again, I hope a topic for discussion, where uh, terrorism is becoming more dangerous than ever before. Why? Because we are just moving from the traditional kind of terrorist attack, using traditional weaponry or hijacking planes, to the first terrorist use of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, that is, after all, something that uh, bin Laden told his followers was their duty to obtain um, 20 years uh, ago. Now, with the, of the, um, the various bad news that has not got much attention in Britain uh, has been the various nuclear security summits. Now, you, again, you can, you can find on the web without any difficulty the records of the 216 um, nuclear security summits at which uh, over 50 world leaders were present, hosted uh, by President Obama. And this is what President Obama said. The danger of a terrorist group obtaining and using nuclear weapons is one of the greatest threats to global security. There is no doubt that if these madmen ever got hold of uh, their hands on a nuclear bomb, they would certainly, or nuclear material, uh, they would certainly use it to kill uh, as many people as possible. Well, this is not a question of if. It is merely a question of when. So let me give a brief um, uh, four-sentence summary of the last um, 30,000 years. There are only two constants during that period. One is human nature. There is no evidence that people 30,000 years ago or at any period between, at any rate, the Magdalenian period and us were significantly different. Secondly, there has never been any human invention which did not spread across the world. It used to happen rather slowly. The New World was rather slow on the uptake, so it took a thousand years to catch onto the wheel. But nowadays, um, human inventions spread very quickly. 
Now, uh, alas, it's very easy to make a dirty bomb. All you need is uh, nuclear material of the kind, by the way, that you can find within a mile from um, uh, where we're um, uh, sitting. You put it with a, a conventional explosive in any kind of a container. Um, you explode it, and the area that you explode it in under present technology is not inhabitable for a really very long uh, period of, of time. So uh, you know, there's already one, he didn't manage to achieve this, didn't come very close to achieving it, but one of uh, the uh, Islamist terrorists um, spending most of the rest of his life in jail in Britain, Diran Barrett, as he explained, that was his ultimate aim. So we will live to see an attempt to do it. And the idea uh, that uh, we can manage to cope with this without secret intelligence operations is uh, not an idea that commends itself uh, uh, to me. Uh, so there's good news and uh, bad news. And um, I'm sorry if I've ended up with more bad news than good news. Thank you very much. Fascinating uh, history there from Professor Christopher Andrew uh, on the background to the whole debate on any intelligence. And also, I think he set a new record, managed to plug five books and a TV series in there. Uh, <laughs> the Americans is on Amazon Prime, isn't it? Very good. Do you like it? Have you seen it? Um, yes. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the, a tremendous tribute to the ability of Amazon Prime to take a really interesting subject and make it absurd. <laughs> so, uh, that's our first speaker, and uh, don't forget, your time will come uh, shortly when you'll get to ask questions of the, of the panel. Our second speaker will talk about whether technology and hacking has made it more difficult to maintain secrecy, and what implications this might have for national security. And just a reminder that uh, he is only the second holder of his position to be publicly named. He was uh, the head of British uh, Secret Intelligence, MI6. He was C or M, if you prefer, James Bond's boss, Sir Richard Dearlove. I hope my microphone's working and everybody can hear me because I'm going to speak from sitting down here. Um, let me try and follow up Chris's fine introduction by talking um, about official secrecy largely in the United Kingdom because I think that's probably what you want to hear from me. And I think my role here may be to answer your questions but I'll make some comments which I hope will encourage you. There are no indiscreet questions, there are indiscreet answers, so um, we'll have to see how that plays out in practice. Um, I think what I should try to do is to describe to you um, how official secrecy works in the intelligence and security community and the extent to which that's been changed by technology. The architecture of the intelligence and security community is ultimately about protection of sources and methods. And that's why it operates in a great degree of secrecy. However, the other side of the coin is that the purpose of intelligence gathering, espionage or interception, is to gather the intelligence which will support the formation of government policy. So the intelligence and security community has to, as it were, perform a trick. On the one hand, it has a citadel of knowledge about sources and methods which it needs to protect. And on the other, it actually needs to disseminate its material in government 
to be as widely read as possible so that government ministers making tough decisions, as it were, have a body of knowledge on which they can, as it were, base the development of policy. And if you want a sort of fundamental explanation as to how the intelligence communities work and why they're like they are, you have that juxtaposition of sources and methods, great secrecy, and on the other hand, use of the material which has to be relatively widely disseminated. And I am a great believer in transparency in government. That may surprise you. And the reason I'm a believer in transparency, it's really important that the coinage of secrecy is not devalued by misuse. And as Christopher correctly said, pre the 1990s, there was a great deal of classification of government information which was totally, completely unnecessary. And I was certainly one of the people in the forefront of the modernization of the intelligence and security community which was put on a legal basis by the Intelligence Services Act of 1993, I've forgotten the date now, 94. Um, and I mean, for example, just to sort of expand on what that meant in practice, when I joined MI6 from Cambridge in 1966, MI6 had one lawyer who turned up in the office for half a day every six weeks. <laughs> when I retired as chief, I had 10 lawyers sitting on the other side of the passage from my office. Admittedly, when they came in to see me, I said, don't tell me what I can't do, just tell me how I can do it. Um, but, I mean, what I'm saying is that the, the, the intelligence community in the UK has moved from this hidden position to one where it has a complete framework of legislation. In fact, in this room, I've given several lectures to law students on the relationship between the intelligence community and the law as it's now conceived. So that is the sort of crucial fact this balance between dissemination of intelligence and protection of sources and methods. Now, unless you have worked at the heart of an organization which is there to protect its secrets, and that is really the identity of its sources, whether they're technical or human, it's, it's very hard, if you haven't got that experience, there probably are some in this room who have, to, to understand what it's like you know, when you go in, you, you, can't take any, you can't take any personal computers, you can't take your iPhone, you can't take anything at all. You go into your office and there are no papers around because every night everything is completely cleared away. And your access, even if you're in these organizations, your access to knowledge is highly compartmentalized and controlled. So you don't necessarily know what the people next to you or in the next room are actually doing. And to run an organization and keep it cohesive with these Chinese walls, it's called restrictive security, need to know. And this is how these organizations have to function in order to protect the identity of their sources. We in the UK have a highly integrated intelligence community which has been a part of government 
since the early 1930s, really. Um, and it has a very clear place. It has a very clear set of controls, a very clear now legislative base, and a very clear political control where you know, permission for its activities have to be given by senior government ministers. So the, the sort of haphazard nature that you might imagine, it just isn't like that. It's probably one of the most supervised and tightly controlled areas of government. And it has, as Chris has explained to you, an important place in this strange and dangerous world in which we live. Now, obviously, the waterfront has been totally changed by modern technology and the impact of modern technology. And what I was specifically asked to say, well, you know, has it made it more difficult to keep secrets? Well, if you use technology badly, yes. If you use it well, it's made it easier. And if we look at the sort of leakages that have been recently suffered, and I'm thinking specifically of WikiLeaks, Assange, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, these are, frankly, massive cock-ups. Edward Snowden was able to download, I don't know how many million documents, I know how many British documents he downloaded, 58,000. Several million American documents. Now, if you're in one of these organizations, you're sitting in front of a computer from which you cannot download. Um, you shouldn't be able to print. You shouldn't be able to download. You shouldn't be able to do anything like that. So, I mean, I'm shocked by the Snowden case because it's a fantastic example of massive security incompetence. And it should never have happened. Now, I'm not talking about the morals of this. I think the issue of the discussion of secrecy in its place in society is really important. I don't like the fact that Assange and Snowden are the flag carriers for this issue. They need to be carried by people who are more reputable, more respectable, and basically who are not, I think, driven by dubious motivations. So okay. that's, that's my view, and you can... Okay, uh, on, no, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the issue that they have raised is important. And the other issue, that the situation in the States legally is different from the situation in the UK. And I think that we have quite a strong structure here in the UK to explain secrecy and explain the use of secrecy. But that, there is an explanation as to why there was a sort of massive cock-up in America. If you read the 9-11 Commission, which uh, Chris has talked about, the big weakness, and I think there's still a weakness in the US intelligence community, is what's called stovepiping. It's a big community. It's massive. It spends a lot of money. And it's very, very bad at sort of sharing information laterally. So one of the recommendations of the 9-11 Commission was there should be much more intelligence sharing. And this explains why Chelsea Manning, sitting, getting bored in a container in Afghanistan, Iraq. Was it, I thought it was in Afghanistan, or it's Iraq, okay, was able to download a whole lot of State Department um, diplomatic uh, telegrams, which he normally pre, you know, in, in another earlier time would not have had access to. But the 9-11 Commission recommended much more sharing 
across US, which was a good recommendation, but it was done too quickly without strict controls, and the implementation was very poor. And I mean, this is, you know, the weakness of big government, if you wish. Um, so, I, I mean, all, I, I think basically I'm going to leave it there. That's a sort of taster of my views and where this issue might be leading. But um, the point I haven't really covered is the issue of big data and bulk interception and, as it were, how that might relate to you personally. All I would say is that this really is a crucial political issue. It's important that these issues are debated properly in Parliament, that they're understood by the public, and that whatever laws we, as it were, adopt have political consensus. And largely in the UK, we have cross-party consensus on these issues, and the law as it currently exists. There's a big difference between the collection of bulk data and you being looked at as an individual. And the controls for intelligence officers in looking at individuals' communications are draconian. And you have to have very special and clear permissions which are then legally scrutinized. So one also should have a distinction between big data analysis on the one hand and investigative intelligence work looking at specific individuals on the other. And I think Chris has given you a good explanation as to why we need an intelligence and security community in a liberal democracy. I think you've had a taste of the sort of stellar nature of this panel here. We've got the foremost historian on secrets uh, who's written the history of MI5. We've got the man who was tasked with protecting us all when he was head of MI6 and bearing his mind that his predecessors weren't allowed to be identified. Even the organisation wasn't allowed to be uh, identified in years gone by. And uh, our next speaker, he's the most successful journalist of his generation in uncovering secrets. He's Nick Davis. Okay, just before we get to the secrecy, there's something to be said about privacy, which Chris did raise at the beginning. Because of the new technology, our private data is massively vulnerable to exploitation, not so much by the state, but first by huge, greedy, power-hungry, profit-seeking organisations like Google and Facebook. And I'd like to abuse my position here in front of the few hundred of you to urge to do the following two things. One, stop using Google. Use DuckDuckGo, which is a search engine that doesn't track you, so that you can't be invaded by Google, exploiting your every move on the internet to sell you crap and send you information and notifications that you'd be better off without. Somebody has to stop Google spreading its tentacles around this planet. So, so dump Google and use DuckDuckGo. Do you promise to do that? Thank you. Right. <laughs> Second thing, which is really easy, just cancel Facebook accounts. Just don't use the bloody place. Because Zuckerberg is getting so powerful that he's seriously talking about having a go at the White House. So it isn't just about protecting your privacy. It's about trying to, to quell and reduce the power of these greedy corporations. So is that a deal? No more Google, no more Facebook. Fine, that's that problem solved. Now, yeah, I, I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> okay, so secrecy. I don't think we've really got to the target area here. It's terribly easy for Chris to say... Whistleblowers should expose tyrannies, North Korea, Russia, China. Easy peasy. 
It's terribly easy for both of them to say, we have to keep secret the operational activity of the intelligence and security agencies. There's nobody whose brain is engaged with the rest of their body who's going to disagree with either of those proposals. The question is, what do we do in a democratic society? Is it okay for whistleblowers to do what they do, to disclose information which government and security agencies are saying must be secret? So, by some fluke, I've dealt with a lot of these characters. There's been, since the late 60s, half a dozen people who came out of MI5, most of them on the record, a couple behind the scenes, to blow the whistle. There was one from the Joint Intelligence Committee, JIC. There's been a couple from MI6. I've dealt with all of the MI5 whistleblowers, plus the JIC guy, plus Assange, plus the Snowden material. I would like to take on what Richard said about these whistleblowers not being reputable. These are decent people. They're not crazy people. All of these people had high-minded motives for coming out and for, not, not yet, so for coming out and speaking and risking certainly their reputation and, in most cases, their liberty. They took real risks in order to tell you what was going on behind the screen of official secrecy. And the point is that that screen of official secrecy always and everywhere is abused by governments and intelligence agencies. Nothing has changed of significance since 1992. D just go back. 1992, these agencies finally admit, yes, OK, in a dark corner, if pressed, we admit we exist. Big deal. Why did that happen? It wasn't because they themselves suddenly got a dose of democracy. It was because there'd been a series of whistleblowers through the 70s and 80s who raised these issues. Do you remember the ABC trial? in what, 1976-7, where Duncan Campbell from The New Statesman disclosed in round terms what GCHQ was doing. He and his two sources were prosecuted for daring to do that, but they were right to do it. And subsequently, we had Kathy Masseter. Oh, I'm older than everybody nowadays, but in 1985, she came out, very brave woman, on the record, and told people, I've been working inside MI5, and I'm appalled to have to tell you, I've been spying on the National Council for Civil Liberties, who Martha works for now, Liberty, and on trade unionists, and on peace campaigners, and it's wrong to use the power of the state to do this. She came out for that. She was smeared all over the place. Just, I'll, I'll, I'll go on with this, but just an example of how these agencies operate, or operated, no, operate. <laughs> she, she, she was a, a, a fully qualified intelligence officer. She was also a woman. And so when she started to complain internally that the surveillance power of MI5 was being abused to, to get information about soft targets on the left, she was told, oh dear, dear, you're having a little bit of an emotional problem. And they sent her to see the, the MI5 shrink, who was a guy called Hailstorm, who worked in, in Harley Street. So she had a session or two with him. With him. It, it got nowhere, because the problem wasn't emotional. It was, it was much more a political problem. When she then bravely came out, the creeps at the, who were running MI5 at that time briefed a, a subservient MP who went to the Daily Mail, the worst of all possible newspapers, and there was a front-page news story which effectively said, Kathy Master is bonkers. That's why the MI5 had to send it to the psychiatrist. A smear. Whereas what they should have said was, thank you. Thank you for pointing out how badly part of this organisation is doing its job and it needs to be stopped. And there were more people that followed up. You remember Peter Wright, who'd been the assistant director of MI5, who was so worried by the extent to which the KGB had infiltrated that organisation, brackets, I think he got some of it wrong, but he was right in principle, it had been heavily infiltrated, that he eventually came out in public. And when he did that, he also talked 
about how MI5, quote, had been burgling their way across London while pompous, bowler-hatted civil servants pretended to look the other way. It needed to be said, and bravely he did that, and the, the British government tried to take him to court in Australia to punish him. These people are brave and decent, and without them, these agencies would not have been put on the record, wouldn't have been legally recognised, but because those agencies continue to overclassify material, it is necessary for more whistleblowers to come out to keep pushing them to remind them that they're supposed to be operating in a democracy. So, so we must stand up for the whistleblowers and not accept the kind of smearing that says these are not reputable people. They're very brave. Look at Ed Snowden. I, I really admire this man. As soon as he did what he did, and remember, he did it openly. He came out on the Guardian website and said, it's me. I disclosed all this material. He was then, of course, attacked legally. He managed to get out of Hong Kong. He got as far as Moscow. He's still in Russia. Russia's a tyranny. I have nothing good to say about Vladimir Putin at all. You can see how brave and straight Ed Snowden is by the fact that he uses his Twitter account to attack Putin. And Putin, with a flick of his finger, can hand that go guy over to the US authorities and he'll spend the rest of his life in, in, a, in a box with electric light going on 24 hours. He's an extremely brave, decent guy. Now, just as an example of the overclassification, so I saw the 58,000 documents dealing with the British end of what Snowden disclosed about GCHQ. And the big thing that he told us was that in 2008, GCHQ started to attach wires to the cables that run under the Atlantic Ocean carrying telecoms and internet uh, traffic between North America and Europe. There's more than 100 of them. And GCHQ were attaching wires to them so that all of that material would flow through their incredibly powerful computer systems in Cheltenham. So that started as a pilot in 2008. By 2010, it had become a formal operation. It was picking up speed. And th there are a lot of these cables. There's an, you need an enormous computer capacity to, to deal with all the material. But they were building up to the point their intention clearly was to get all of the traffic, everything. OK, the, the bulk communication data that... Richard's talked about. Now, they did that secretly. Why did they do it secretly? They would like to say, ah, well, operational security. We couldn't possibly say we were doing it or ask your permission to do it because that would tip off the bad guys, to which the answer is bullshit. There is not a single bad guy on the planet, terrorist, organised criminal, paedophile, who doesn't understand that since Victorian times, his communications have been intercepted. You do not have to tell them that that's going on. The reason they didn't tell us that this was what they were doing is what they didn't need to, because the, the telecoms companies who own those cables had it written into their licences that they had to cooperate with an operation like that. So they were able to start doing it without asking our permission. Separately and very significantly, there were the internet service providers in the UK who had no such obligation to cooperate with that kind of operation. And therefore, the security and intelligence agencies persuaded the coalition government that was elected in May 2010, David Cameron, Nick Clegg, in the Rose Garden, what a disaster. The, the intelligence agencies persuaded that government to bring forward a bill. It was known as the Data Communications Bill, colloquially known as the Snoopers Charter. Now, that asked our permission to do something much smaller, which was to require the internet service providers to hold on to our data for 12 months so that police, security and intelligence agencies could have access to it. And what did Parliament say? No. Not at all. That's too far. This is a snooper's charter. Here's our privacy. Here's what you need. But you can't say that just because we, the intelligence agencies, need to do this, we're entitled to breach your privacy on that scale. So Parliament said no 
to, the, to that rather small request in the Data Communications Bill. Note that those agencies made that request in public because it was perfectly okay to do it. They weren't tipping off the bad guys about anything they didn't know already, which is that their communications are vulnerable. However, in a grotesque act of profound bad faith, those intelligence agencies, GCHQ specifically, continued to run Operation Tempora, extracting all of that telecoms data from all of those transatlantic cables without asking our permission. And at the beginning, it may be that they failed to ask our permission out of sheer arrogance. We know better than the people of this country. This country doesn't belong to its people. Guys in pinstripe suits and bowler hats, those pompous civil servants that Peter, Peter Wright complained about, we're entitled to decide what happens to these little people who live here. But by the time that was happening in Parliament, and that the elected representatives of the people of this country were saying, no, our privacy means more than that, that agency was acting in thoroughly bad faith. And... If it hadn't been for Edward Snowden, we would never have known that they were doing it. We would have never have had a chance to debate it. And at the end of it all, this is what matters, that we have to have whistleblowers, even if it is a democratic society, because governments and intelligence agencies abuse official secrecy and hide from us things which we need to know. And without those whistleblowers, we old hacks can't do our job, and you don't know what the hell's going on. Thank you. <laughs> Right, we're definitely off and running. I can just see George Clooney. Can't you let him passion? <laughs> it's going to go very well. Um, we would have had a fourth panellist, Martha Spurrier, as I said earlier on, the Human Rights Barrister, Director of Liberty, was supposed to be here. Sadly, she can't. She would have talked about attempts by the government uh, to ramp up state surveillance through uh, the Investigative Powers Act of uh, last year and other uh, matters through the law, and also how technology has made it easier for the security service to invade people's privacy. I want your questions in just a moment or two, but I'd like, based on the, the heat that we've already generated here, I'd like to ask uh, Richard, first of all, um, whether he thinks that the work of people like Nick, and I should mention, probably Nick's, the, the award you're most proud of winning was the Paul Foote Award, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, for investigative work. The, the work that he's mentioned, that he's done, that Paul Foote did, that others have done, spy catcher. Have they harmed Britain? Has he put us in danger by his work? No. Um, I don't... Thank you for that. No, no, I don't... <laughs> I, th I think Snowden has harmed R. But, I mean, once you have a Snowden, then, you know, there's no, as it were, restriction on how the media... And there shouldn't be in a democracy, so I don't have any problem with that. I mean, I do have a problem with Snowden's revelations because they were highly damaging to uh, the capability of the West, as it were, to deal particularly with aspects of the terrorist problem. Um, however, I mean, I do draw, dis I mean, I disagree with so much that Nick says that, um, <laughs> because, you know, this is a, this is a massive oversimplification um, and, you know, puts the agencies in a light which I think is completely unjustified because um, the issue of legality and compliance is so important inside the agencies that he's painting a picture that, you know, these things are out of control. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I mean, I think you were quite careful to say that they didn't break the law. GCHQ. If you want to answer, the, the, the old... Because GCHQ did not break the law on any of these issues. Okay, I, I would say with Operation Tempora, 
that they had no parliamentary approval at all and dubious legal authority no, under the old regulation of interception. Absolutely clear legal authority for bulk interception. Under REPA, the old act. Yeah. The old act, REPA, which was passed when people were using crocodile clips and copper wires, had not anticipated anything on the scale of what GCHQ uh, did. It is arguable that by stretching Section 8 of REPA, they could get themselves some legal authority. But it was extremely weak. Dubious is a good word to apply. Um, Come on. I, I, I talked to a guy who worked I, for I MI5 think, who was saying, inside GCHQ, where this MI5 guy used to go, we were so alarmed by what they were doing that it was we, MI5, who were speaking up on behalf of civil liberties. But there's one thing you've left out completely. You haven't even mentioned it. It's political clearance. Mm -hmm. So all the operations of the intelligence and security agencies, the sensitive operations, are subject to political clearance. They have to have the signature of the Prime Minister or the Foreign Secretary. That's after the documents have been sexed up then, is it? No, no, no. But can, can, I, can I just deal with that point, then you move on? Two, two quick moments. One, William Hague, Foreign Secretary responsible for GCHQ, reacts to Snowden's disclosure of this operation on the transatlantic cables by saying, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. This is a man who doesn't understand the issue, which is our privacy. How dare he say that to us? It isn't about whether or not we've got some specific dirty secret to hide. We're entitled to our privacy because we're entitled to our privacy. Okay. So what happens with these politicians is that you get sucked into a kind of Stockholm syndrome. Jack Straw revealed at some point in the last couple of years that he discovered that he had been the object of MI5's activities, surveillance, since he was 15. He said, I'm neither surprised nor shocked not good enough. You need to be shocked. You need to be surprised if you discover that's gone on. There's a kind of complacency among those politicians who like being in the room with the clever guys from the spooks agencies, and they fail to represent us. Malcolm Rifkind, who was chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee at the point of the, of the Snowden revelations, started saying that they, that they were all a threat to national security before he even asked the intelligence agencies. They change over. It's like the pigs in... Uh, animal farm becoming humans. Let's just ask, uh, <laughs> ask Chris that same question, whether, as far as you know, secrets revealed, and that's the question, can we keep secrets? Have secrets that have been revealed, leaks, uh, journalistic stories, have they put the country at risk, people at risk, from your history of MI5? Well, let, let me put it... Um, I mean, there is so much to talk about, and um, what we're going to be able to do in this uh, session is um, hear a variety of different views. But what I hope very much is that nobody in the audience uh, will um, take anything that any of the three have said uh, for granted without going off to actually look at the evidence. Now, I would maintain uh, that the, the evidence available um, uh, does not agree with a number of things that Nick said. Well, I mean, I will say that, mm -hmm. um, uh, but um, uh, I'll indicate one or two areas that um, can, can be checked. But you know, we, we do have really rather, it's perfectly possible to say, you know, all politicians have, have, have failed, the Intelligence and Security Committee has failed, the independent review of terrorist um, uh, legislation, a series of uh, uh, distinguished lawyers who, who know about human rights uh, have failed. But in order to sustain the argument of massively illegal and inappropriate behavior, uh, it's necessary, it seems to me, to um, uh, it, say that an, awful, that an awful lot of people who are supposed to be keeping uh, an eye on this have failed. Now, uh, there will be a brief question to Nick, and I will, I will give you time to think about this, uh, Nick, and I'll go on other things. Um, I don't know, but you know, I don't see as many former foreign secretaries and home secretaries as you do, although while I was working on my book, I talked to um, 
uh, quite uh, a number, uh, they all felt that the system was um, a very difficult system, uh, was uh, working appropriately and in accordance with the law. Now, alas, MI5 files, which used not to be available at all, are only available to the middle of the Cold War. But unless one suspects huge uh, forgery, you see a really rather simple process. And the simple process is that um, uh, when uh, the um, intelligence agencies wish to put myself or Nick under surveillance, I don't believe they've ever done so for, for either, they have to get a warrant signed by the Home Secretary. Now, um, uh, the, as I've already indicated, if, if Nick has spoken to a Home Secretary that felt this was, uh, uh, was uh, abused, I'm sure he will, will tell us. But the, there is one further thing, which it is possible, I, I think, to find the evidence does not point in the direction that Nick said. And this is the notion of intelligence agencies trying to persuade the government to engage in more surveillance. Not so. Now, I'll give some evidence that you can, uh, you, you can check. Actually, the, um, uh, the, the, the Prime Minister who saw at his own request the Director General of MI5 more frequently than any other 20th century Prime Minister, and indeed more frequently than all other 20th century Prime Ministers put together, was Clement Attlee. Now, here, here, there is a document which I've reproduced a facsimile of uh, in my book, which I'll try not to uh, advertise again. And, <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> um, its, its name is um, The Defense of the Realm, the authorized um, history Shameless. of uh, MI5, and um, it was a bestseller, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Whoops. <laughs> anyway, you, you will find there is a handwritten list provided by the leadership of the Labour Party to MI5 in um, uh, 1961 of 16 Labour MPs they wanted investigated. MI5 by that time thought that... Um, uh, the Labour leadership was going a bit over the top, so it didn't investigate any of them, which is a pity because the man at the, the first on the list, Will Owen, was actually, as the archives of uh, Czechoslovak foreign intelligence show, a fully paid up um, uh, agent of Czechoslovak uh, in, intelligence. Now, so far as bugging and burgling their way across, um, uh, across London, well... You know, Peter, Peter Wright, um, not attempting to dismiss him wholly, but I'm sure um, Nick would agree that he had to put it mildly, an extremely uh, well-developed strain of uh, fantasy. Finding a historian now who believes in his central proposition, which is that one of the DGs, uh, Roger Hollis, was actually a, a KGP agent, is pretty difficult. Life didn't work out too, too badly for him. He made more money, admittedly, largely as a result of the incompetence of HMG, the Thatcher government in particular. His book, um, uh, Spycatcher, sold more copies than any other book ever written on intelligence, and including, I say this with a degree of bitterness, including <laughs> mine. <laughs> Tough world. <laughs> uh, time to ask questions. Have we got some microphones to hand round? Is that how we're working? Yes, we have. Yes, yes. Fantastic. Oh, uh, a lady here is anxious to be the first, so we'll start with you. Others put their hands up and we can, we can find you quite quickly, but if we can take down to the... Oh. Just tell us who you are and for your question, thanks. Right, um, I'm Bev. Hello. Um, 
One quick point, Richard, Chelsea Manning is a she, not a he, thank you. Um, isn't there a particular... Is that the question? Or... No, no. And there's another. Isn't there a particular risk in relying on politicians to say yay or nay to, to operations? Um, we're, re we're relying on... We're relying on we seem to have sometimes a touching faith in the impartiality, in their impartiality or, the, or their, or their you know, basic human decency. And we fail to realise that maybe in a few years they could change, they could become more authoritarian. They, you know, they might not be the sort of people we particularly want to have making those decisions. Why not? Legal, um, a judge or somebody. Okay, so, why, so you're talking about operations we... on behalf of the Secret Service? Yeah. Okay, so thank you for that. We'll get ready for the next question. Um, do politicians give the yay or nay to all operations? They have to give political clearance within the framework of the law, you know, as it's written in the UK, which is the Intelligence Services Act. Um, politicians have to...
Thank <laughs> you. 